If you are vulnerable to psychic damage from roguish language, stay away from these gibbering mouths. But if you intend on listening to this podcast about enriching your fantastical group hallucinations, you're too far gone already. Your next game is going to be massively clever, and here is why. In this episode, we find some answers to how can we make a giant culture that players want to explore? And what creative details will I be able to use in my game to bring my world to life? And when is sand liquid? That one's... It's not. (laughs) Welcome to the Hook and Chance podcast. I'm Jordan. And I'm his brother, Travis. So I got to share something that I was fairly excited by. I've always been really hesitant to ever run a game of more than five players. Yeah, I like three or four. Yeah, like the smaller, the better. You get into a more intimate setting and, you know, you just kind of get to, everyone gets to bring their personalities out a little bit more, a little bit more time in the spotlight kind of thing. Yeah. Well, recently... I didn't think it was possible. I didn't think I'd ever do it, but I DM'd a session for 12 players that were all brand new to D&D for four and a half hours and get this, somehow completed a complete story, somehow delivered a complete story from start to finish and delivered it on time. I had a very select time window. And it was incredible. It all came together. I felt like I actually knew what I was talking about for the first time in a long time. (laughs) And I didn't help. I was a naysayer. I thought it was mathematically impossible, (laughs) but he did it somehow. So big congrats. Well, I mean, I think it just goes to show that maybe, just maybe, I'm not talking bullshit most of the time. (laughs) I actually know what I'm talking about. Just Do not follow up with the players. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm sure they were very satisfied. All right. Well, if you know what you're talking about so much, then what are we talking about in this episode? Well, I think you and I kind of got so jacked up on the idea of giants from our last episode that we had to take a crack. We had to take a crack at some giants ourselves. Yes, because... After talking about cultures for so long, we wanted to make one and actually share it with you because we find giants so fascinating, but the ones that exist in D&D are all, they're established. We could add a bit to them, but it's really fun to just start from scratch. Absolutely. And to do so, we're using the culture creator that we've talked about a few times before. We have an episode about it. We lean pretty heavy on this resource. Yeah. I mean, we use it because... Sometimes when you're reading the lore in the book, or I've done this before where I've tried to make a culture just based on whatever ideas pop into my head. And then as it turned out, the epic holiday that I spent four hours detailing out isn't going to show up in today's session. (laughs) You're talking about the, the holiday that you created because you have this rich and deep culture that was completely random. Yes, exactly. I've got random, deep details that will never come up in gameplay. Man, there is nothing more disheartening. And, I mean, we've talked about it before, that if you dig world building, build away. Yes. However, there's a huge gap between (laughs) world building and shit that's actually going to show up in session. Yeah. And I think that's what we try to do, is try to find this balance between what's interesting to build and what's actually useful to build. And somewhere in between there is where we try to find that perfect middle ground of any time invested in creating these details is more than likely going to be useful as a DM in a session when you're trying to introduce these new creatures or monsters or people into a game. Yeah, time is always our biggest enemy on this. Oh, because it's, you know, it's a deep, dark pit. You could spend days world building. But do you have that kind of time? Not unless I call in sick this week. So if you were paying attention in the last episode, we're going to make some desert dwelling sand giants. And we think we've come up with some fun stuff. 
before we do that, we kind of wanted to make a point about where we like to draw our inspiration from. Absolutely. And I'm always super fascinated by the natural world, always looking to animals and the way that they've adapted to different environments is super (laughs) fun. I think Jordan and I's approach to world building and culture creation is uh, very evident if you've listened to any of this podcast, because we're constantly drawing on bugs and innovations and all kinds of things like that to develop our cultures. But when it comes to borrowing from real cultures, what we like to use is their technological advances or the way that they've adapted to the environment, but not the traditions or accents or details that are unique to that culture because of who they are. That's where you can get into some really hot water and not to defend doing so, but I can understand how people get themselves into that situation because it's much easier, or at least it seems much easier to just steal from real cultures rather than let, like you said, the environment create your culture. I think the big point here is that it's really not that hard to do it yourself. The other benefit to doing so is that you end up creating a rich and wide culture and a problem with a lot of the monsters in D&D, especially sentient ones, is that they just kind of get labeled as evil, which is kind of weird because there's always differences within a culture and cultures have values and interests and, and ways that they get by. I find my biggest problem with the good and evil thing is that evil is based on the morals of that culture and the morals come from the values of that culture. So what's evil for one culture is very clearly not evil for another. And in that exploration comes really interesting stories. So rather than take from real-world cultures, borrowing adaptations to a climate from the human or the natural world and various adaptations from other sources is really good. And then when that kind of runs dry, then you continue on with various other details. And all of a sudden you've got a really, really unique and authentic and rich world to start to draw stories from and adventures and NPCs and real fun, creative storytelling that is worth exploring because it all just came about so naturally. Because you created it and your players are expanding upon it. Language and dialect and accent all walks into very, very dangerous territory, especially when we are reading an intelligent monster stat block, and it clearly states that all of them are evil or they all just do this bad thing. When you've done that and then mixed it with some real-world dialects and accents, holy shit, you've just done a, a really bad thing. Especially when there's no reason for that creature or humanoid to do that bad thing. They're just doing it to give the party something to fight against? Yeah. So when we're using a culture creation system, we got to back up these immoral acts with a reason to do them and draw them from the values that you've given to that culture. And it still creates stories and opportunities for your party to set those wrongs right. But not because they're just inherently evil or not just because they go against a particular thing that somebody else doesn't believe in and they're certainly not drawing upon real-world cultures, all of it is so organic and so natural and so much more interesting and culturally sensitive. Yes. So I guess there's two ways to do it. Build your own culture from scratch or pay real respect to a culture by studying it and getting people from that culture to weigh in on your world. So if you're not going to do that, don't use those cultural details. That sounds like a lot of work. I'd much rather just build my own. (laughs) Yes. So, all right, dum-dum, put your money where your mouth is. Let's build some giants. Money mouth. Okay, we're going to go to Kinship Camp and build some desert giants. This is Kinship Camp, where rich histories and diverse quirks are explored between weary adventures around the safety of the fire. So we're creating a subculture of giants. And again, if you listen to the last episode, we talked about a base giant culture and the six subcultures that formed from that, which were the different types of giants. And we talked a lot about the values of those giants in the last episode because we think that the values are the core of a culture. And 
the first step was, of course, to ascribe a set of values to giants as a whole. And then for each of those subcultures, we just swap out one other value. And all of a sudden, it takes on a little bit of a life of its own. You can see the similarities, but then you can also understand why a culture might diverge and create an offshoot. So why do fire giants and why do frost giants differ so much? So going back to the six values of giant culture that we came up with, since the culture focuses on each one of those values, there's something that they don't focus on as a trade-off. So the core values for giants that we came up with were intuition at the cost of objectivity, art at the cost of empathy, cleverness at the cost of safety, tradition at the cost of justice, bravery at the cost of reflection, and community at the cost of progress. So when we were thinking about desert giants and what value we're going to switch out to get us started, we're thinking maybe they're kind of on the level of hill giants. They never were very high up on the scale of giant kind. Well, how else could they really kind of piece out? Because we had kind of discussed that we wanted maybe an outsider to the ordining. And if you're unfamiliar, the ordining is kind of the overall rule of law, the governance of giant culture. And it's actually passed down onto the giants from Adam the Allfather if you're going from Forgotten Realms lore. But basically, it's just a big set of rules for giants. So we wanted a giant that just didn't fit that mold and wasn't even considered on the giant ladder of significance and importance. And since hill giants are at the bottom of that ladder, and hill giants kind of suck, <laughs> we thought they maybe started at the level of hill giants and then just did their own thing. They they missed the bottom rung of that ladder and they've fallen <laughs> off entirely. And hill giants suck so bad because they swapped out cleverness for indulgence and kind of became the perpetual post-Thanksgiving dinner fools that they are. <laughs> they're always really full, they're always eating, and they're always got that kind of like tired, dumb state of mind because of it. I like this idea simply because it means that every hill giant you've ever come across that's been a big, dumb, brutish ogre really just needs to digest. <laughs> and all of a sudden, it's like whip smart and is like, all right, I'm fit. I'm back. All right, let's get some stuff done. <laughs> Until they decide they need to eat again, which is always. Yeah. And this like idea that a little bit of Pepto-Bismol might just like cure them. So like they're always holding their stomach and suffering from indigestion and... <laughs> Well, yeah, what's all of the uh, upset stomach? <laughs> Diarrhea. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's their dance. <laughs> <laughs> their cultural dance. Uh, that's rough. So if they were to split off from hill giants, then, you know, maybe they swapped in that overindulgence and they wanted some actual survival skills. They got clever again. I like that. They hold ingenuity and solutions to problems in a higher regard than most other giants. They love ingenious approaches to problems. Yeah, and they're lean, motivated survivors of the conditions they're in. They're pre-Thanksgiving feast. <laughs> they're hungry. <laughs> <Yes>. They're lean. <laughs> they're whip smart. So getting back to those values, that means for the desert giants, we're going to switch out tradition for adaptability. Actually, they're going to go with that adaptability at the cost of tradition because they don't like all of those rules that the giants put into place. Yes, they have shirked the ordining. They have just thrown out all of the nonsense, all of the extra fluff from giant culture and just said, leave us alone. We're going to go exist in the desert. We don't want to follow your rules. And also look at that. That's super clever. We love it. <laughs> So then we step into the belief part of the culture creator, which is just kind of like statements of the things that guide them, their beliefs based off of those values. And it adds a lot of richness to whatever culture you're creating because a thought means so much more than a single word. Oh, and on top of that, even if two cultures share the exact same value, their interpretation of that value the belief that gets attached to that value can be completely different. Yeah. You can have two cultures value hard work, but all of a sudden, mixed in with some of the other values that you've created, that takes on a very unique characteristic that exists only within that culture. Totally. Or only within one mind because you have a beard because it's stylish. 
and I have a beard because I'm lazy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we both have beards. You might assume that we're similar. So we've got some thoughts that we wrote up for each of those values. So if we're starting with intuition, that's that first value. I was thinking something one of these giants could say is that life and death come in the blink of an eye and you can't always use rules and established practices as they become outdated as soon as the sands shift. That's pretty good. And I like that because it also feeds into their lack of tradition. You know, you do something for so long and you start to question why you started to do it in the beginning because now all of a sudden the same conditions don't apply. Right. You're doing something out of habit when it doesn't actually work for the current conditions. And is it helping you or is it hurting you to carry on with that? So I like that they're kind of going by gut. And a lot of it is just like, I feel like this. And I feel like this probably for a reason. Yeah. So their next value is art. And I really dug this because it might be difficult if you are, say, a nomadic giant culture to lug art everywhere with you. Totally. Well, that started me thinking, what if their art is not permanent? That almost becomes a little bit of a belief system itself of nothing is permanent or perfect, but beauty is always worth creating even if it exists only for a moment. And I started to think, well, what if they created almost like a sand patterns? Oh, like, uh, yeah, like raking the sand. Yeah, and what if they almost told their stories in the sand and then it was committed to time? The art is almost in the process of creating that story rather than the outcome that will sit there forever. Yeah, Hmm. it's in the artistry and the pursuit of telling that story. Could even almost be a performance thing. Yeah, there you go. I mean, we were kind of talking about Burning Man. Yeah. And how, you know, a part of that is always non-permanence. And then I started thinking of Black Rock City from the sky is all these circles and interesting patterns and things like that. So I wonder, yeah, if our desert giants just tell their stories in these big concentric circles or rings around, say, their village or their settlement, wherever they're sleeping for the night. Yeah. When the next sandstorm comes through, all of their art has disappeared. Well, a very impermanent form of art is also music. So I would imagine that that would be a part of their culture as well. Yeah, that might be kind of interesting. The next value is cleverness. And I think that they hold this pretty high in all of their dealings and just the way that you're going to interact with them. They think there's no limit to a determined mind. They will keep working at a problem. They'll do whatever they have to do to solve it. And the more, I don't know, creative, useful, original the solution is, the more they like it. I like this because it almost links back to the cloud giants and how the cloud giants you know, pride themselves in being highly intelligent. This is just a different form of intelligence. Yeah. Potentially the most revered people within the group or within this culture are just the truly ingenious and the truly clever. Yeah. And the outsiders that they respect the most are those that prove their cleverness and ingenuity. And with that lack of permanence in that culture as well, I wonder if this is another opportunity for say, the most clever recently to be somewhat of a leadership role or even just highly respected. An important figure in the community. But like, if you go visit that community again, they're going to have a very different important figure in the community. And it changes from week to week. It's whoever came up with the last truly clever idea. Nice. Uh, Well, adaptability is their next value. And a belief around that I think is pretty simple especially when you're trying to live in a hostile climate like the desert and shifting sands is that survival is paramount. Survival is the most important thing to these people. That one also, you know, pervades everything that they do, but it's very simple, like you said. Then we've got bravery. Their survival doesn't mean that they run from every fight. So they're very much linked together in that way, but they're not like the fire giants who will just face anything head on. (laughs) But a belief around this could be staying strong in the face of dire circumstances is all that allows for some to carry on. They don't back down from the challenge. They just use their minds instead of their bodies like the fire giants do. Yeah, see, I like that because it doesn't mean that they're cowards. Yeah. They'll still fight 
a purple worm that's devouring their people in a desert. They'll yeah. still go head on. They'll just do it in a lot more clever and creative ways. In a way that ensures their survival because the typical idea of bravery is like, I'll sacrifice myself to be brave. But you don't have to have that self-sacrifice involved in the value. Yeah, I like that. Well, the final one is community. And I think in terms of living in a hostile climate as well, community is the most important thing here. And so one can move a stone, two can move a hill, and three can move a mountain. So from stuff like this, you and I were talking about water tables existing within the desert. If you could dig far enough down, and yeah. this is a true fact that there still exists massive aquifers underneath the Sahara Desert. They're just so far down because there's just not enough precipitation to sustain them. So they just retreat farther and farther and farther down, and they're evaporated on the surface. So what if these giants work together to dig out massive holes that would just get filled in several weeks later, but provide shelter? You know, most medium-sized creatures, this would be a feat that would just be impossible. Yeah. But for a group of 30 to 40 desert giants, all digging out a hole together, like a tiered stepped ladder, yeah. and the further down you get, the more solid and uh, mud-like or clay-like that sand might get. And so you could even have these like terraced communities that were dug straight into the ground. And then, of course, the displaced sand could act almost as a temporary berm around that community. Yeah, they would make such short work of all the sand in that hole. And I like the fact that it's like a temporary setup. They stay there until a big storm comes through and makes them move to a new pit. Okay, I love the image that conjures in my head of just giants staying put in the midst of a sandstorm to be buried underneath. And all they have to do is use their significant muscle and heft to just dig their way out. And can you imagine as a group of adventurers trudging through the blistering hot sun, maybe just as the sun is setting after a hot day, and then all of a sudden, a whole bunch of desert giants unearth themselves. <laughs> Start stretching. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, getting the cricks <laughs> out of the back. I love it. I think in that situation, what could also help is like maybe they've got a little bit of knowledge of fire, even from the fire giants, so they could make certain parts of their structures out of glass. And I know that you can't make glass with just like a campfire, but that's why there's specialized fire knowledge. Can, okay. Can turn those piles of sand into maybe glass berms so that, you know, they're not going to just slough into their home. That's interesting. Yeah. Kind of like a hardened, tempered glass, or at least you know, some kind of elements in there, in their culture, you know, certain barriers or like you said, uh, yeah, berms hold some of that stuff back. That could be really interesting. Okay, so that's a pretty solid foundation of beliefs to work from. So next in the culture creator is the backstory of that culture. So the first question is, what environment did the culture form in? This one's pretty simple. We've been talking about it the whole time. <laughs> yeah. They evolved in the inhospitable deserts. The second question is, what existed before the culture? I think this part could be pretty interesting with all those other giant subcultures. So what if these desert giants originally were trying to find their own way and they lived among each other giant type for a time and they learned things from them? and they adapted them to their own purposes. But with each one, they had a fundamental disagreement. Well, that's really what creates new cultures, so that makes sense. Yeah. So, like, if the storm giants taught them the value of water, but the desert giants rejected their independence and the fact that they live alone. Or again, I was just talking about them knowing how to use fire. So maybe when they lived among the fire giants for a time, they taught them to manipulate fire and lava and use it to their advantage but the desert giants rejected their deep desire to go to war all the time pretty much every one of those values could cause a rift in between each one of those giants i like that yeah the frost giants could teach them to endure the harsh realities of nature but the desert giants rejected the fact that they just brutally fight yeah the stone giants taught them the beauty and enriching 
qualities of art in your life, but the desert giants rejected their attachments to those pieces of art and their attachments to their homes. The stone giants would get, you know, super emotionally invested in their art and be crushed when it was destroyed. Mm, yeah, because it was meant to last for centuries. Yeah, and the hill giants maybe taught them the strength of that community of honoring your group, but the hill giants hated those outside of their group. So maybe the desert giants turned against that. Ah, and are maybe a little bit more welcoming in yeah. terms of giant kind. Interesting. Because I always appreciate as a player being able to actually approach a community before they hate me. Well, that's a an important <laughs> point is that, yeah, whenever you come across a group of giants in D&D, it's kind of just assumed that they're going to start hucking rocks at you. Yeah, they're very and high and mighty. Yeah, there's no way to really get in as a player and get a feel for what a culture is or to start to... I mean, this is why all of that world building goes to waste because the more we do this, the more we teach players that, hey, that's just an evil thing. Go and hit it. Yeah. Versus, hey, that's a thing. Maybe it's nice. Maybe it's not. Maybe it wants to eat you. Maybe it wants to have you for dinner and not in the eaty way. <laughs> oh, nice. As a guest. Yeah. That'd be very easy for giants to feed people. Oh, yeah. No, it's like giving crumbs to your dog. Yeah. It's like, here, that's more than enough to fill you up, huh? <laughs> Tiny belly. The next question was, what changed allowing the culture to form? And I think those fundamental disagreements, you know, one by one through the giants, gave them a reason to forge out on their own. Well, I would almost say that once the ordining was formed, that might have been that kickoff. Oh, yeah. The, the leaders of giant kind were finally like, all right. We got fire giants, frost giants, went through the list and left out desert giants. They're <laughs> just like, oh, where do we belong? Or gave them a particular spot and maybe seeing everyone as more equal, you know, within their own culture of saying like everyone's equal, the clever is is the good. As soon as they were handed a spot within that ordining, regardless of where it initially was, they just kind of said, uh, you know what? You can take your ordining and you can shove it. We're yeah. going to peace out to the desert. Yeah. And that kind of makes sense that they went to the desert because then they're thinking to themselves, no other giants ever going to come here to say whatever they have to say to us. We don't want to fight giants. We just want to live on our own. Yeah. They'll go to the farthest reaches of the earth to avoid their giant brethren. So the next question is a culturally defining moment. What do you got? We kind of just covered it. I mean, that rejection of the ordning kind of defined who they are. These prompts kind of overlap, but I think that's fine because it's core to their culture. Yeah. And finally, what world problem drives this culture to persist? Well, I think that maybe these desert giants, I mean, yes, a cultural problem needs to persist so that they can't necessarily just give up and stop being a culture. But I think the existence of the other giants culture means that they cannot go back to some of the other shared spaces of the giants because the giants are all about where do you fit within this ladder. And considering they no longer even exist on the ladder of a hierarchy and they reject that idea, there is very few other places for them to live happily and freely. Yeah. So maybe they're kind of working on the ways to live in the desert. They want to move past survival at some point and into, you know, thriving as a culture and expanding as a culture. Maybe as long as the rest of the giants hold this ordning as the highest rule of law among the giant kind, they're hoping to wait it out for one day for that to be thrown out. Oh, yeah. Or for them to evolve past that. Mm -hmm. I think think that's all the beliefs we need. That's all the prompts we have. So let's move on to culture details. This is where we get into all the kind of little juicy tidbits that are going to come forward in the way a single giant's going to act and behave. And really all we have to do is go back to all of the stuff that we've actually built. And this stuff comes really simple and easy. <laughs> so what's the dream life of a typical sand giant? Well, I think they're all about you know, learning and developing their minds and their cleverness. So a life where every challenge has been faced and overcome, where nothing surprises you anymore. See, I like that because it plays into their bravery. Yeah. 
and it plays into that cleverness so well. So anytime something comes up for a giant, they're saying, yeah, I'll face that because it's new and I can get to that dream life someday. That's cool. I dig it. What about their major challenge? Well, considering that they share the deserts with blue dragons, I think it might be really interesting to explore that relationship because I can't imagine that blue dragons are going to be particularly welcome of any giant, considering that, again, in Forgotten Realms lore, they go back as far as anything. Yeah. As enemies. They're the oldest enemies. There was like a thousand year war or something between them. Yeah. And with their rejection of the Ordning and Giant Kind, yeah. the Sand Giants are just kind of like, we don't really want to be enemies with you. But then, of course, you've got the Blue Dragons who <laughs> it's hard to get that message across to them. Yeah. They hate giants. Always have, always will. They're very clever, hateful creatures. And that might also play into this that trying to resolve whatever difference that is with the blue dragons, because they might actually respect the blue dragons' intellect and their cleverness. Yeah. But they could never truly be friends. And maybe they just want to. Totally. Like with those values of cleverness and adaptability, since the two share those, the giants are, they see dragons flying around the skies and they see all the things that these dragons can do. And they think, if we work together, we could do a lot. Yeah. I like that. For a friendly culture, I think maybe whatever major kind of humanoid desert city you've got in your world or desert town, whatever, they could actually be allied with the desert giants that are nearby. Any other nomadic groups. But I'm curious if the only reason they couldn't join is just because the sand giants live in a much more interesting way. Like, they cannot live the same way that humanoids can live. Yeah. Giants, you know, like we were just talking about, maybe they're used to getting buried alive in the sand. <laughs> right. And they move at a different pace. They travel at night when it's too cold for other humanoids to travel. So there's just there's too many differences in their lifestyles to make them be able to join together. But they do still definitely respect any other humanoid creature that can share such a hostile environment with them. And they're like, props to you, bud. What about a hostile culture? Well, I think we kind of covered that blue dragons are going to be their biggest hostility. You know, these giants are just traveling around and the blue dragons are always laying traps for them and trying to ambush them and you know i know that blue dragons live often underneath the sands and you know they create lightning storms around their lairs and things like that blue dragons are also known to like lay in the sand and wait for prey and stuff like that these sand giants everything attacks from below or there's like <laughs> rocks from above that are like trying to eat them between purple worms and blue dragons, I don't think the sands are safe. This sounds kind of nightmarish. Yeah, yeah, that's why they move around so much. <laughs> <laughs> so what about an artifact? I think with normal culture creation, artifacts is a pretty neat area to explore. But with these folks in particular, they don't like traditions. So I think they specifically don't like artifacts. I don't like hanging on to stuff. They travel around too much. Hmm. Well, I wonder if the artifact is the place. It's the it's a physical destination that they travel to. Hmm. Like one place in the desert, you're thinking? Or several. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they go from place to place, and this is kind of hallowed ground. This is one of the places where the sands don't shift. Uh. This is a particular oasis that we go and we drink and eat and have a nice evening here. And then we move on. What if it's somewhere that the sands shift very little? Like it's a little bit different, but it's somewhere that they bury. So That's cool. When they come back to it, they unearth it on purpose. I like that. That's very neat. So they need a tool. You and I came up with something very unique for this. And I got really excited. And I think this is probably one of the coolest parts. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty exciting. It's got a few interesting uses for one tool and it fits right in with what we've created so far. So we came up with a name for this thing, and it's kind of like a trident, shaped like a trident, but part spear, and we landed with tridige. Because trident is Latin for three teeth, and so we said, okay, let's work off of Latin too, and this means three 
digits, fingers, because these giants feel like it's more useful than just teeth. A trident's meant to just stab and bite. Yeah, so they wanted a tool that could do many different things. So if this tool had flat tines to it, it could act as almost a shovel, it could be bladed, and if the actual handle to it, you know, like we said, a long spear, was perforated full of holes, as well as the uh, the steel tip on the end was perforated full of holes, then a sand giant would have a very easy time of stabbing this weapon into the sand, and then with their huge lungs blowing into it, causing the fluidization of the sand by pumping air through it. And if you've never seen this, you can look it up on YouTube, but sand can be made to be almost as fluid as water just by pushing air up from the bottom. This would be an amazing way to trap prey and enemies in a way that doesn't mean that they have to actually fight it. Yeah, it's a much more clever way of disabling your foes. So the tridage. Yes. So what it does, going through that list of uses again, it does serve as a stabbing weapon. It serves as a slashing weapon. It serves as a shovel. It serves as a thrown weapon, a spear. A spear, yep. It serves as a fluidization trap. Serves as a walking stick. Yeah. This thing is the Swiss army knife of desert tools for these sand giants. Everyone's got one. They make it themselves. It's a, you know, rite of passage. Yeah. It's their art. Yes. The only piece of art that they bring with them is their tool. All right. And it's got a bottle opener on it. (laughs) What about an animal? And a cheese knife. (laughs) Moving on. (laughs) Uh, An animal. Well, we had to look up some of the other animals that dwell in the desert. Not real ones, but crazy fantasy ones. Well, my favorite is the Zaratan. And... If you're unfamiliar, a Zartan is exactly what m- it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what that sounds like. It's what the stories and legends of a an island that was actually on the back of a giant turtle. So a Zartan is the giant turtle. However, they can be in the water. They can exist on the desert. Uh, so like a gigantic tortoise. And since these things are so long-lived very much similar to the giants. They're big, they're slow. I don't know, maybe there's a kinship there. (laughs) They survive the elements. The giants just lay down and let them walk over them and take a nap, get some shade. Love it. (laughs) What about some style? Well, I think that since they're so survival-based, they're going to have mostly sand-colored clothing. That clothing, from a practical desert perspective, is going to be loose because loose clothing in the desert actually lets the air travel over your skin and gets rid of the moisture that your body produces. Yeah. And I like that it's sand colored because they probably don't want to be seen. Exactly. Here's an idea for meerkats. Meerkats have dark circles around their eyes and it's not because they're super tired. It's because that actually absorbs and reflects the sun away from their eyes. Helping them see. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, of course. That makes sense. So I could see the giants intentionally doing that to themselves. Yeah, dark circles around their eyes. Just give themselves two solid punches to the eyes every morning. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this almost becomes another way to express themselves in, you know, a particular pattern that they use to, you know, it's like uh, football players. Yeah, doesn't have to just be solid lines. It can kind of be individual. I think that a lot of the style in their culture would also use glass. Constructing other tools and instruments. You know, we talked about when they're constructing their temporary homes. Why not? They don't have a lot of other resources in the desert. Yeah. And any other resources would probably be uh, desired a little bit more than just the excess amounts of sand (laughs) that they have at their disposal. Yeah. All right. So you kind of took a crack at most of their gestures and sayings and things like that. So, uh, yeah. What about just like a simple gesture? I was thinking... When they're in thought, which is pretty frequently, sure, they don't just like tap on their heads or rest their fingers on their heads, kind of like we do, but maybe they're actually tracing patterns. <laughs> it's like a, a subconscious thing while yeah. they're like jet, they're stimulating the ideas yeah. in their noggins. But like, like they that. do it in a very, again, maybe in an individual way. Everyone's got a different way of doing it. Huh. That's cool. 
what I like about that is that's a great thing that we can add into the role playing. Right. As the DM, I can sit there and actually do that. And people would be like, oh, that's kind of different. Yeah. Uh, what about a greeting? Well, I think when a giant sees another giant coming back from something, they'll just yell out relief as in I'm relieving you coming back to being a community and we can help each other. Relief. I like that. That's cool. Yes. It's a, that's a, that's a wonderful welcome. Relief. <sighs> I'm relieved. I can relieve you. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. What about thanks? Well, I think maybe thanks wouldn't be an actual word or phrase, but it'd be sharing water. Either they have small individual bits of water that they can literally just toss to you or they, you know, give you some of their flask, something yeah, like that. Some A big swig out of a canteen is like a almost a greeting even. Yeah, a thankful gesture for sure. We need positive and negative reactions. Yeah. So I think if somebody did something that a giant liked, they would say, you've given me a moment to remember. Ooh. Because everything is so temporary in their lives, but they like to take lessons from things. That's great. I like that. That's <laughs> that's good stuff. Negative is kind of like an insulting thing to say to somebody, I guess. So you're nothing but a blissful stone worn away until you're gone. That's almost a threat. Yeah, it kind of works as that too. And like bliss kind of coming from that uh, ignorance is bliss thing and from their history with hill giants. Hill giants just sit there. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Okay, final one. What about a goodbye? The way that they say goodbye is another single word. And I think it would be pretty cool if it was endure. Ah, just because that's that's what you need to do until the next time that I can greet you with relief. Yeah, exactly. They kind of go hand in hand. Very good. Yeah, they're two sides of the coin. Well, I feel like I can role play a giant now. I'm really excited to get into this. I want to start figuring out what kind of story I can create from this. And already, because we have this fairly rich culture, you know, I wonder what would happen if a party had to help one of these sand giants try to go and maybe make peace with some of the other giants in the north in their cultures? Or what if the sand giants had uh, a party try and hunt down one of their rogue members that was maybe giving them a very, very bad reputation with some of the other communities that lived in the desert? Yeah. What if there was like a place on the edge of the desert that was going to be attacked and the party needed to just go See if they could get help from the sand giants. What if one of the sand giants wanted help from the party in hunting down a blue dragon? Yes. What if there was a renegade group of sand giants that, you know, you just twist one of those values and all of a sudden they're antagonistic? Ooh, yes. I have so many different ideas for adventures that could happen now. So I think the last thing that we need is a stat block for this giant. Absolutely. We got to see what they can actually do when things get rough beyond, say, relief. So let's do that in Lamashtu's Breeding Pit. This is Lamashtu's Breeding Pit, where the most vile and deadly of creatures are birthed and unleashed upon doomed adventurers. All right, so while I was looking up sand animals for a while, you were actually creating this uh, stat block and being useful. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they're both useful in their own particular way. I learned that certain lizards in the desert absorb water through their bellies. See, that will come in handy one day. (laughs) I learned that there's a frog that makes a cocoon and stays underground for like years in the desert until it rains and it gets its cocoon wet and then it knows it can come out again. Wow. Over to you with the useful stat block. We need to talk about that (laughs) cocoon a little more. Okay, so sand giants. You know, I kind of wanted a sand giant that was physically a little bit more akin to stone giants. You know, they're they're tall, they're wiry, they have a a long stride throughout the desert. Wide feet. Yeah. And even though they're closer related to hill giants. So trying to mix a bit of the two stat blocks together for the basic stuff, we have something that's around a 
challenge rating of seven for players. So tough, but not impossible in case you want to fight them for some reason. I think we've already kind of established that they're fairly peaceful. But again, maybe there's an adventure where you need to take one of these big folks down. So that's going to be a little bit trickier because we've added Tremor Sense just as they're able to feel you getting closer in the sand at about 30 feet. And really, I kind of added this because I kind of suspected with everything hovering just beneath the surface of the sand that's going to eat one of these poor bastards, <laughs> they're going to get pretty darn good at sensing what's moving underneath there. They're very in tune with it, and that comes from that intuition. Yeah. And I wonder if they could even use their tridage to stab into the surface of the sand to even feel oh yeah you know, tremors underneath there so that that could be a fun role-playing thing could add to their perception or something like that similar to stone giants we've added sand camouflage so sandy skin oh, yeah. sandy clothing they're they're gonna look and blend in pretty darn easily they hunker down in front of a dune and you can't see nothing but their peepers <laughs> terrifying <laughs> So we've thrown in a multi-attack, and then, of course, their main weapon, their tridage. This thing hits not super crazy hard, but also not soft. Right, they're not swinging like a fire giant. They can throw it like they can throw a spear or a trident. Yeah. But the biggest ability is their sand trap ability. So like we talked about with the liquefaction of sand... The sand giant can dig its tridage weapon into sand near an enemy. By blowing air through the hollow body of the weapon, it causes the fluidization of the sand below their target in a 15-foot radius centered on the tip of the weapon. A medium creature is immediately buried 10 feet deep into the sand, or 5 feet for a small creature. Tiny creatures are not affected, which actually builds off of the real fluid mechanics of liquefied sand. Okay. Yeah, if you're heavier, you're going to sink real quick. Yeah. A buried creature is blinded, restrained, and has total cover against attacks and other effects outside of the sand. Any creature attempting to escape the sand must make a DC 16 athletics check for each five feet of travel to the surface of the sand and is prone once escaping. And has sand stuck all inside their underpants. Every crevice is just full of sand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. I like it. That gives it a really unique attack that will not be expected. Well, and what I like about this is that this could be their peaceful approach to a lot of stuff. Yeah, totally. Like, by all means, they could use it to hunt. And another idea is simply that this is a great way to hide themselves. Oh. They could stick their weapon into the sand <laughs> just below themselves. I love it. And away they go. They just immediately sink down into the sand. Elevator style, yeah. Yeah, and when they need to get out, they just crawl out. Yeah. And they could even lay their their weapon along the sand, dig it down in, and then just lay in wait, hide themselves, hide their weapon. Yeah. And then they've got a, a sinking trap. Mm -hmm. ready to go whenever they need it. And they just pop up and say, hi, how you doing? Yeah. Hey, I <laughs> caught you. You're going to be my dinner tonight. This has been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. That's their version of, you know, saying grace, respecting the animal. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to my trap. You're my dinner tonight. <laughs> They're very polite people. Yeah. You can also easily just have a, you know, a giant pool party. <laughs> Got a few giants standing around the edge and everyone else is just playing in the sand. <laughs> They're blowing <laughs> bubbles. Yeah. Well, very good. I hope you and I have a lot of fun ahead of us with some sand giants. We hope that you found this helpful, whether it was the actual outcome of our brainstorming to create sand giants or just the demonstration that the culture creator really doesn't have to be that hard. You and I worked at this for maybe uh, an hour this morning, a real solid hour in between, you know, food breaks and uh, and breaks on Twitter yeah. to come up with this. It's not that hard. And once you get through those values, everything else comes way easier. It's a fun process. 
like is all kind of just bouncing around in your head and feeding off of itself rather than, you know, again, what I've done before is with each step of a culture, trying to think of details, you're just trying to think of them independently. And this has been the biggest lesson through creating these systems for us has been that creativity cannot happen in a vacuum. It needs structure. And as soon as you have structure, as soon as you have prompts, all of a sudden you have creativity. And here we go. We're off to the races. Totally. So if you're curious, you can, of course, download our culture creator on our website, hookandchance.com. You can also visit our page for a stat block of the sand giant, if you so choose. I'm going to create a sand giant NPC that sails across the sands because of the whole liquefying the sand thing. He's got a normal sized ship, right? (laughs) Oh boy. He's standing on it almost like a surfboard. But he's got a captain's hat on. He's like a windsurfer. Yeah, and he's blowing his pipe into behind him. It gives him both propulsion and keeps the sand liquefied. <laughs> Interesting. Wow. <laughs> it's an odd means of locomotion. Thank you. If you liked the content of this episode, you found it helpful, uh, a review on Apple Podcasts never hurt anybody. In fact, Apple Podcasts, it's pretty much the only thing they give a shit about. <laughs> So it's the only way that you can help the podcast grow in the charts. But also the most important part to us is that you join us on Discord uh, and join that great community of awesome players and DMs that exists there that just exists to help each other with this kind of stuff. Yeah. And you can even tell us what ideas came to mind for Desert Giants because I'm sure we didn't think of them all. Oh, yeah. I'm sure you have some ideas percolating in your brain. And we would love to hear them. Thanks to Tabletop Audio for the sound effects you heard in this episode. You can follow us elsewhere at Hook and Chance on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Reddit. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening, listening and, and relief. Game. Taste my tridge. Ew. Damn it, we're going to have to change the name. It's flavored. No. <laughs>